people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. story of two men who met on the off-ramp of the highway of life. Sorry, I was throwing up. <laughs> I had a nervous stomach because of my wife. We're separating. Three months this Thursday. Jack Lemon is Victor Clooney. We've been together for 12 years. That long? He only wants to die. Now the whole thing is in my suicide book. You want to read it? No. Well, the math out is a mailman. A milkman. A hitman. Oh, my God. What line of work are you in? Pest control. They met by coincidence. Became friends. Come on, back. I promise not to tie you up again. By accident. Oh, it is a lucky thing I wound up next door to you. You know what they say. The kindness of strangers. Stay together by necessity. And survive by mistake. Let me do the job. You? Yeah, I have nothing to lose. Besides, I owe you one. What are you gonna do? Walk across the street and throw up all over him? They were eternal friends for an hour and a half. You just may be the nicest person that ever lived. I don't have to stand here and listen to that kind of talk. Now, maybe they had their little disagreements. I'm sure the road got a little bumpy. And sometimes life got a little hairy. Wait a minute! But what's a little murder? Between friends. Nope. Jack and Walter in the most arresting comedy of the year. Have I done something to offend you? Buddy, buddy. The original odd couple together again. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. This week we are looking at Billy Wilder's 1981 film Buddy Buddy. The movie is yet another pairing of Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. This time they're filling the shoes of Lino Ventura and Jacques Brel in this remake of Edouard Molinaro's La Emedure. Sure. Also known as Pain in the Ass or Pain in the Neck. Matthau plays Trabuco, a ruthless hitman while Lemon plays Victor Clooney, a milk toast whose wife left him three months prior. Naturally, they get thrown together in the unlikeliest of circumstances, and hilarity ensues. We will be spoiling Buddy Buddy as well as Paint in the Ass as we go along, so if you haven't seen either, please check them out and come back after you have. We will still be here. So Kat, when was the first time you remember seeing Buddy Buddy, and what did you think? 
I was late to the party on this one. It was several years ago, and I know a lot of people don't like it, but I actually really like it. I really like it because um, I love Billy Wilder anyway, and I know he didn't like this film very much. But it is a progression of his like ongoing themes, like the emasculated male. I love Jack Leatherman and Walter Matthau together anyway. And it's just so fucking ridiculous and funny. Plus it has Klaus Kinski in a jogging suit with a cock necklace on. That instantly takes it to at least an eight just for that scene. And Heather, how about you? What's your experience with this one? First of all, I must say what Kat just said is reason number 965 why I love her and why I love working with her. That is, I think that should have been on the poster. Just the cock necklace is... The kids key, kids key with those shades. It's everything. It's, it's just everything. Um, I was first made aware of this movie as a teenager when I picked up, which I'm sure Kinski's ghost was thrilled about a, t- a teenager, a virgin, a teen virgin picking up Kinski Uncut at Barnes & Noble. In his book, Kinski has this really amazingly bitchy quote when he was making Buddy Buddy, Billy Wilder took him aside and said, hey, you know, you'll make the serious art films with Herzog, and you make the funny films with me. And Klaus comments, yeah, Billy Wilder hasn't made a funny film in like 30 or 40 years, and if I let that asshole Herzog direct me the way he would want me to act, his films would be unintentionally funny. <laughs> Which I, I disagree with Klaus, but it's that, that line, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the book in front of me right now, but that line has haunted me for years, because I'm like, God damn, Damn, dude. <laughs> but he is Paganini. I love Paganini. We should we should do an episode on that. I actually really love that movie. Um, and I love Klaus. And so I've always wanted to see this for years just because the the idea of taking Kinski, who is a brilliant actor, and Billy and good on Billy Wilder for recognizing that. Like I think that's actually the cast in this film is really tight. But seeing Kinski next to actors like Jack Lemon and Paula Prentice is surreal. It is so weird. And seeing him in a comedy is even weirder. And, and Klaus has, a lot of people just think, oh, he's this madman. Kinski had a lot of range. I mean, even even when he is playing kind of like a more dark character, like if you watch Crawl Space, it's a quiet performance all the way up to the end. Like he's, he's a brilliant actor. Seeing him in this film is weird, but seeing him, I'm with Kat, the cock necklace, the hair, he's got that great hair, early 80s Kinski hair. The jogging suit. I think my only complaint, we should have had more Kinski. We should have had Kinski nudity. We should have had some really uncomfortable sex scenes with him and Paula Prentice and Jack Lemon. I I think if I had made this film, though, um, it would be, it'd probably be banned in like 70 countries. <laughs> it'd be the, the, the faces of death of sex comedies. He does make leisure wear look perverse, though, so... He makes everything look perverse. That's the thing I love about Kensky. You could put him in like a like a Disney movie, and you're like, get him away from these people. He's gonna try and do something to Goofy. I can I can feel it. As for my initial impressions of the movie as a whole, I can't say that I liked it, but I find it I do actually kind of find it interesting because you have so much talent. I mean, Billy Wilder is a great director. You're so diplomatic, Heather. Just let it out. Let it. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, I've seen way worse. I mean, I didn't care. You didn't like it, did you? Just just say. I did not care for it. But I can't say that I hated it. Honestly, if if I really hate something, it's something I can't finish. 
Because I get too mad and I'm like, no, fuck this movie. I've got a life to live, you know? I did not feel that way. I do think Buddy Buddy is interesting as a hot... It's a little bit of a hot mess. But the cast, I mean, I love seeing... Jack Lemmon, who doesn't love Jack Lemmon? Walter Matthau, I love, not in this movie. But, God, I mean, Mike and I talked about Charlie Varick a few years ago for the show. And, I mean, Charlie Varick's a brilliant movie. And Matthau's amazing in it. That's my initial... I don't know, Mike, What was? what's your relationship with this movie? I had never seen it before. I had only seen the poster or the video box a lot. And was just like, okay, what is this? Like, I've seen a few of the Matthau Lemon comedies. Obviously, I've seen Odd Couple... In everything that I have seen them in, and I'm mostly relying on the odd couple, it's Lemon as the persnickety, uh, more sissified version of the male identity, while you've got Mathau as just the gross version of the male identity, and just the way that they bounce off of each other, and Mathau's always grumpy, and Lemon is always just kind of manic. It's kind of the same thing here in this movie as well. Um, I really felt for Walter Matthau in this movie just because Jack Lemon is so fucking annoying. And I know that's supposed to be his gig. and But I think we're supposed to empathize with him a little bit more than I did because he has lost his wife. Of course, of course, he's going to lose his wife to Klaus Kinski. Why wouldn't he lose his wife to Klaus Kinski? Mike, I don't feel sorry for him. He didn't give her an orgasm in 12 years. That's true. Come on. (laughs) And I mean, they had sex twice a week. With his Wednesday and whatever it was nights. (laughs) Twice a week for 12 years, not one orgasm. And he never noticed? So it's like the unspeakable in 1981. Everyone thinks that when Harry met Sally was like the, the exposure of the fake orgasm. But they talk about, he has that line, Kinski, well, you know, she did what a good wife does. She faked it. And I think it has its transgressions. The only thing that was missing was Kinski saying, she never faked it with me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but we already know that. He doesn't need to tell us that. <laughs> and he's like, I, I rickety wrecked your wife. <laughs> he did things to her that, that haven't even been defined yet. <laughs> And it's really from the first minute we meet Lemon that he just comes off in this really bad way. I mean, that, that Matthau meets him as he's coming out of a bathroom at a, like basically a rest stop or a truck stop. And Lemon's like, Oh, I was uh, throwing up. I have a very nervous stomach. And Matthau's just like, Yeah, I don't give a shit about what you're talking about. <laughs> I really like Matthau in this and I like that he is just so dour. I don't understand necessarily some of the choices that he's doing the the accent that he's doing with this kind of hitman speak i guess you know like (laughs) thank you i thought that i might i kept hitching on that too i'm like what is the he's like there's like a weird cadence he's like get the cops they got better things to do especially today this is a respectable hotel you bet that's why you don't want cops all over the place asking stupid questions let me take it up with the manager you're not gonna take it up with anybody don't you think that poor son of a bitch has enough trouble he doesn't need cops he needs sympathy understanding a little human arm i don't know maybe it's like a parody of things like the godfather or something he's trying to do the hard man but it doesn't quite work with Walter Matthau. I mean, just the way he speaks normally is fine. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing. Like, you look at, like, Charlie Varick, and he's legit. I mean, he gets tough in that. He's kind of menacing at times. Like, 
uh, not menacing, but you know, he's got that gravitas to it. He can bring the, the testicular fortitude naturally. So I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of Kinski, uh, <laughs> testicular fortitude, but, uh, <laughs> testicular fortitude. It's an odd choice. And yeah, now Lemon's character, and I love Jack Lemon. I mean, he's lovable, but not so much in this film because, at one point, you know, he keeps trying to kill himself because his wife left him. And Kinski says it's emotional blackmail. And it's like... Yes, it is, though. It's and 100%. I think, no, that's I, accurate. I, I think I'll just give a little counter thing. I, I've got a lot of time for Wilder's later work because I think it gets unfairly judged. Although, I'll admit, he worked better in the Hays Code. That's when he was at his best, was with subtlety. And I know he didn't like to be pushed out of that. And so, you know, he does these later films like Avanti and, well, even from Imola Deuce, he tends to get snagged off, but I've got a lot of time for Imola Deuce. Kiss Me Stupid is another one that kind of gets panned. And that was the one where the critics really turned on him in 63. And he's definitely better more with subtlety. So there's kind of a bit of... Oh, I don't really want to do that. Like, you can sense in him. I know he didn't like the film very much. But I think the later work is really interesting. He's got his queer Sherlock Holmes. You've got a vant. He's really interesting. And then Buddy Buddy, which is like this kind of culmination of all these themes because he did like to emasculate his protagonist. He just really liked to give him a hard time. But the things that he said about masculinity were just Oh, just so good. And I think he does the same thing here. I don't think we're really supposed to like Jack Lemon. I don't think Billy Wilder likes the character. I think it's deliberately played in that way to be annoying. Like, and he could be annoying. Even in The Odd Couple, he's kind of annoying. But it's turned up to 11 here, and he is particularly. But then there's all this stuff in there under the thing about how this guy's just been phoning it in with his wife. He left his first wife, so he's a bit of a shitbag for a younger model, Paul Apprentice. Doesn't give her an orgasm. He's been phoning it in. He's a lazy little shit. And now she's left him. What does he do? He doesn't say, I'll improve, or he makes it her fault, and then says, well, I'm going to kill myself. You know, and and so you've got Kinski is almost like the voice of reason in this, which is weird because it's Klaus Kinski. But everything his character says is true. Like, he's an emotionally blackmailing little shit is what he is. And grotesque. And I think the whole film's deliberately grotesque. So I have a kind of affection for this film, and I think I might be responsible for this episode because I bigged it up to you two. But... I was at the advantage, I guess, is I came to it with no hype because all I'd ever heard was how shit it was. So I eventually watched it thinking, oh, it's probably going to be shit and then was pleasantly surprised. And then, of course, I say to you two guys, oh, my God, this film's amazing. (laughs) I didn't dislike it. I genuinely laughed quite a few times. We'll talk about the previous version of it and subsequent version of it uh, later on, but yeah, we should probably say this was based on a play by Francis Ferber, and you can really feel the play a lot of times because so much of it is around this hotel and this hotel set because you've got Matthau checking into one room, which is the basically third floor book depository type room where he's going to take out a witness uh, in a mob trial. So Matthau's working for the mob. And then you've got uh, Lemon in the other room, and he's there to commit suicide or get Cecilia back. 
but really it is all about the suicide, which is really unfair to Miles Chapin, the bellboy, who would be cleaning up all of this mess that uh, Jack Lemmon would be leaving behind. Jack Lemmon in this is an entitled little prick. I think it says a lot about male entitlement, and Wilder never really seemed to have much affection for the male gender anyway. Like, he always brought their worst qualities out in the best ways and even in sunset boulevard where you've got you know the main protagonist is supposed to be put upon by this older woman he's a sneaky little shit he just he's just trying to milk money out of her even the apartment where you've got jack lemon one of his best roles for wilder he's like this spineless sneaky little ladder climber at the start so he was so good at doing that i think he had absolutely no affection for like the male hero or any of that kind of more american thing but i guess as an outsider he liked to poke into that world or you going back to like uh, seven year itch again it's all about male fantasy and entitlement i wouldn't say he's like a feminist in any way but I, I think he was quite happy about exposing men for their weakness and as the director, he's kind of cruel about it as well. He like to really push his protagonists and see where they go. But I wanted to bring up what you said about the hotel, actually, Mike, because I hadn't thought about that. This film kind of, it feels 10 years too late in a way. It I was just, came into my head, Plaza Suite with Walter Matta, which I absolutely love. And that whole 70s era of like the Neil Simon stuff that was very theatrical seems to have been done in that same vein. But in 1981, we're into like very big, blockbusting, big set comedies. We're into like Blues Brothers era. It's an odd style that feels like it belongs more to the 70s. Well, that was one complaint that I read about the film was this is too late. Even the stuff with the sex clinic. That's very 70s as well, isn't it? That whole... It feels like something Paul Mazursky would have done and kind of did with Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice or whatever. Yeah, that whole theme seems very, very 70s. I mean, was there like a, I don't know, like it just seems it should have been made 10 years before because there's so much satire in there about that whole kind of uh, self-exploration thing. By the 80s, people are way beyond that. They're into like the Reaganite era. They're into big stunts and, you know, huge stars and big, big spectacles. So it is an odd one. I think seeing it much later on, I guess, you can be a bit fairer and think. But you're right. It is like a like a Paul Mazursky film. Like, it's got a strange thing or, you know, this idea of someone being stuck in a, in a hotel. Like, um, the film I just mentioned is like Walter Matthau in this hotel playing these different roles. And they're all sat within a room. And it just feels like that, kind of very static, I guess, and not cinematic. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I actually got a thing for films that feel like theatre, if that's even a genre. But where things take place in very limited spaces, I do actually love that. He does a good job of breaking out of that. So it doesn't feel like this is a stage play that was directly picked up and dropped onto the screen because of... The way that we start outside, the way that we see the murders of these other witnesses, the way that we meet Lemon at that roadside place, and then all of the things where after Lemon tries to kill himself, 
Mathau ends up tying him up to get him out of the way. I'm not a big fan of the whole thing with the uh, Puerto Rican maid and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's ridiculous, and so it's kind of funny that way. That is a weird scene, though, isn't it? It's weird. I had issues. <laughs> okay. It is, it is weird. Issues. I'm going to give it that. That scene does feel like... It felt lazy, too, because it's like she's all talking about, oh, my family has a catering business and we make quesadillas. And it's, it's just I like, oh, God. That does feel weird because this is Wilder and I-A-L Diamond. And Wilder generally didn't put anything in. Like, he never wasted anything. So that does feel lazy because you can't quite understand what he's going for with that like why wouldn't she notice he was tied up it doesn't make any sense outside of that though i think the rest of it really comes together i think paula prentice is one of my favorites in this i love her She's oh great. my god how good is she is the one like she is just getting a big o she's off to what is it level for plateau four yes already we're plateau four we're <laughs> plateau four is she just there's, nine, saying, there's, there's nine plateaus i wanted to know that's the that's the other thing. this film it should have had we should have had like at least a diagram i'm like what what are they doing <laughs> what is the ninth plateau <laughs> it's like you're hallucinating it's that good i don't know but it's um, the set of the holy mountain that's what the, the ninth <laughs> plateau is <laughs> Oh my god, how did you just combine two of the things I love the most in this life? <laughs> They're in there in that kids. commune dropping like peyote, stripping off, having spiritual sex magic. Paula Princess is such a great, like, I hate using this term, but she's like a great alpha female. Like, she oh, just has such a great, great, strong presence. And yeah, to the point where you're like, how did this, Lem- how did Jack Lemon's character even nab? This Philly. I mean, like, I do love it, though, when he's all whining and she's like, why don't you go back to your first wife? My, uh, when they get his toy and they get the trousers down as well on Walter Matto. And he's like, oh, wow. She said, you know, you weren't that big. But obviously the joke is this. It's <laughs> like having a look. And it's like, my, my, my theory is she was a lot younger and more naive at that point. But she's totally into a, like, 70s feminist vibe now. And she's not taking any of his shit. She's discovered, you know, that she can have an orgasm. So she's come out of the fakery. Well, doesn't she work for 60 Minutes? Yeah, like a researcher? Right. And she was doing a story on Dr. Zuckerbrot, the Klaus Kinski character. And I love how she's doing the investigation while Lemon is also working for CBS in standards and practices, and he is such a prude that he and can't say. And he's a censor, isn't he? Yeah, he's a censor. He, he can't say swear words. He's like, "Oh, you said the f word. Oh, it's the p word." You know, it's like, "Oh man." There's some interesting, like, weird subtext in the background about the media, which obviously Wilder wasn't a fan of have you seen ace in the hole which is just a fucking masterpiece about the media and now Kirk douglas as this dying man uses him as a spectacle so i wonder what that was a comment on i wonder what that was a comment on because he's he represents the establishment doesn't he jack lennon this like really uptight weird little american prude who you know, can't service his wife and can't bear to have anyone swearing and is just shocked and prudish about everything. It's weird that he picked that as as the background job for Lemon. 
I have to say, it's kind of weird hearing Walter Matthau swear so much. Like, oh, when I loved it. Uh, s- tells him to fuck off. I was just like, wow. Oh, I love that, though, because it's really coarse language. And that, again, is like different for Wilder, because he was so good at being perverse without actually saying it. To actually hear Walter Matthau be crude, I, I enjoy that. I do enjoy that. Matthau swearing just felt like... It felt natural. It felt like a like a like a great breath, you know. I don't know. That's a man that was meant that was literally built to say fuck. I enjoyed that. I mean, he should have done that more in Dennis the Menace. I think I would have watched it. Yeah. If, the, if Dennis the Menace would have been rated R, and it's just him, like, listen here, you little motherfucker. All right, you fucking little asshole. And I mean, Dennis the Menace was a little shitter kid. Like that's the to quote Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> he is a shit yeah dennis the i that's i never even liked that show i was like this kid sucks he's such a little asshole i wonder if it was a throwback or a callback to uh the taking of pelham one two three when he calls up the mob and is just like hello mr green oh mr white let me speak to mr brown yeah kind of judging them on on their um kind of losing their chemistry a bit in this but they then went on to make grumpy old men which is a fucking abomination, that film. Oh, and the, there wasn't there. Was, there was a sequel. Oh, Grumpier, for fuck's sake! Yes. Yeah. You know, it's weird you mention that cat because there was the third one that wasn't made called Grumpiest Old Men colon fucking abomination. <laughs> Little known fact. Yeah. <laughs> Little known. Yeah. See, so you guys get getting all the tea here on the projection booth. Oh, apparently they made the Odd Couple too. In 1998 as well. I must have missed that one. Is that real? That is real. Why would anybody do that? In 98 as well, by by that point. Oh, God. I hated the 90s. It's like, you know, two of the best actors of American comedy, and not just comedy with Lemon, because he made some fucking amazing drama films. You know, what a way to handle their legacy by just... You could be the grumpy old men again. Look, you're old now. Just come and do it again. Which famous person's son directed that one? It feels like a a Jason Reitman joint, you know? The 90s had a lot to answer for. Going back to the the idea of this being based on a stage play, but getting away from the stage, because Lemon escapes from being tied up. And he's just like, okay, well, uh, yeah, let me take you to the clinic so you can see your wife. And I just love that he's just taking him out to put him down like a rabid dog. And he's just like, okay, here we go. And uh, this whole thing of them driving along, it's like, oh, uh, isn't it this way? No, no, I'm taking the shortcut. And then he stops and uh, does Lemon a solid by like, hey, go behind that rock. He's like, oh, well, what's going on? He's like, oh, you should throw up before you see your wife. (laughs) And he's just about to put a bullet in the back of Lemon's head when a car followed by uh, two police uh, motorcycles or led by two police motorcycles stops. And uh, they're just like, oh, this uh, the car is overheating. And they're like, there's a pregnant woman in here. We need to, to use your car. And of course, where do they fucking end up driving right to the clinic? And I, I do like the line about like, oh, we're what is it? We're at the beginning of the process, not the end of the process. They don't they can't handle a baby being delivered, just a baby being made. 
Yeah, that was a good line. I did like that line. Yeah. And they got that, they're worried about their weed stash as well, because they're like hippies. So that's another thing that gives it a weird, where they were, there weren't hippies in 1981. Not that young. They're hippies and they're like, hey, you know, did you get the weed? Like she's in labor and she's like, oh my God, did you get the stash out of the car? And they look like they just come off some civil rights rally in 1968. It's like, what the fuck is, what era is this film? Wasn't the husband even wearing like a fur vest? Yeah, they're total like 68. They, they got the 68 energy. I really liked that couple though. I did they're like great. How he gives the, the chips cops uh, a joint apiece instead of a cigar. Those were the nicest cops, though. Those were, those cops were so sweet. They because they were just like, oh, okay, you know, like they weren't like they weren't dicks. They were like, okay, like, we're happy for your. What did he name his kid? Elvis Junior. That didn't make any sense to me. That was I was like, why would these hippies? I don't know. There was some weird stuff going on. I will say, I've I just started watching Breaking Bad like two hundred years later than anyone else. My kid forced me eventually to watch it. And I'm on season four now, so no spoilers. But Matau, you know, he had a bit of Walter White energy going on in this, I think. But because I've been watching Breaking Bad like all the time, it's like, is he going to blow his head off now? What did you guys think about the interior design of the sex clinic? I wasn't paying that much attention to the design. I was paying more attention to the character actors that were running around inside of it. Like Frances Bay was one of the people. She's the woman with the grandson and... Uh, fire walk with me the the garmin bozia lady oh jesus christ oh my god <laughs> more people will recognize her as the the old bag that jerry steals the uh the loaf of bread from in uh, seinfeld Someone help! shut up you old bag <laughs> i never will ever sign you americans your seinfeld references i can't i can't stand that show so i've never watched much of it and they're just quite good with these signs. I'm like, what the hell? I still haven't seen Breaking Bad. I oh have my god, I have to. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm I've just so great. obsessed. I love I, Brian Cranston. Oh my god, Brian Cranston is just. I I think the reason I put it off, not to derail this, is because I love him in Malcolm in the Middle. Oh my god, um, oh. and I didn't oh. think I could show. never not see him as how. Mm. Um, but oh my god, he is one of the best actors of this generation. Um, I'm once there's we got one more season to go, and I'm just totally like, oh my god, I don't want it to be over. Nice, and of course, it will be over soon, but it is, yeah, so good. But that was my kid, you know, voice of the youth. He's like, oh, come on, it's been out for like 10 years or whatever, you can't be the only person. I'll have to play in the clip and say, look, there's two other people that haven't seen it. You're the only person that's not watched this. But yeah, I've totally been in that zone. So Walter Matau and the whole kind of organized crime thing, it was had a different resonance because <laughs> I've been watching. But he, he definitely had the kind of hard man energy going on, which is so cool. The other guy that I was just so happy to see is a character actor named Gary Allen. He's the little bald guy with the sex doll who's running around. He's amazing. Oh, and, his and this little was... sex doll is amazing. They, they stab Lemon's face when he comes out and he's like, he's just carrying it. And Jack Lemon's just such a little prude. I don't know if, if, if um, Wilder was having a pop at censorship in general, so I know he hated the Hayes Code office. I don't know. But again, a weird thing to be talking about in the 80s when it's kind of opening up. 
I love the library. Because he finds Paula Princess that she's got this this computer in front of her that just has like a drawing of a naked woman that looks like it was done by a ten year old. Like <laughs> it's like when you try drawing naked people as a kid to be naughty, it looked kind of like that. And I love the old lady that what does she tell him to like? Sh- doesn't she tell him like shut the hell up or something? Like I love that lady. I was the one with the chicken leg, and she's like, oh, "Talk to me after lunch." And he's like, "I'm not having any lunch." And she's like, "Well, I am." Just shuts the thing on him. <laughs> oh, the receptionist. Yeah, the receptionist is great. Too. The one I guess oh. that Paula Prentice ends up running away with her at the end of the movie. That's what she sa- he says in the dialogue. That oh yeah, Cecilia ran away with the receptionist. Kinski ruined her for other men. I think that's what that was. It was. I mean, like once you've been buggered by that one. You just have to go to the ways of Sappho, you know, like you cannot return to the land of the man, um, which is funny because that whole joke about Matthew and he's like, oh, you know, he's bigger than what she described. And you know how like Black Flag have that live album, Who's Got the Ten and a Half? Now we know. Walter Matthew's got the ten and a half. <laughs> we don't know about Klaus, though, but that little cock pendant is long. I don't know if that's some sort of representation. That fir- I remember the first time I ever saw that film, it it got to that bit and I was like, this is the best film ever fucking made. Well, that she took her wedding ring and melted it down for him and made a representation of what I can only assume is his cock. As we've all been there. That you know, pendant. I've got two ex-husbands. I would have happily melted those rings down. That should be a ritual act. It's the way they're so matter-of-fact about it, though. I just sort of like, the, what do you expect, dude? Like, just stop moaning. That's the thing. There should have been a, a scene in this movie, like, uh, that's in uh, uh, Shuji Teriyama's Fruits of Passion, where, like, Lemon's, like, tied to the wall, and Klaus is totally just, like, going to town on his wife in front of him. And then yeah, uh, there's, like, a close-up. So doesn't he as well? He's got all the action going on. He's got the pull-ups. This is a shot of Limit, like a close up of his eyes and like two tears. See, I, I, I said he wasn't subtle in this, but thinking about it, he did give us a lot to mull over by not showing us what happened in the clinic. Well, you were talking about the interior design. I forgot that there's all the Asian, like, Kama Sutra uh, pictures in there. And then you've got like the sitar music playing. <laughs> with the sitar music i don't know the 70s i don't know if you watch a lot of euro cult sitar in any euro cult film indicates lots of perverse sex it's like yeah that that weird asian as other type of thing that's going on there and i was like yeah it makes you horny get the sitars on it just made me hungry i was like i want some nan i think i think they should have had some serge gainsbourg because I used to, I used to have a, a joke with a, a film writer a friend of mine where it's like if you hear Serge Gainsbourg and you see a hunchback butler, you know some like weird orgies about to happen. Like if those two stars align, somebody it's got to get real. They, uh, like that's the thing. I would have loved some Serge Gainsbourg in this. Also, the interior design looks like there's a famous motel that was built, I think in Wisconsin, in the sixties called the Cobbler. <laughs> And the design of it, it looks like, it, it looks like, like somebody designed like a really cheesy mid sixties hotel, but they were on a lot of acid. Cause there's like purple carpeting on walls and shit like that. Like it's amazing. I thought the Institute looked a little bit like the Gobbler. The Gobbler Supper Club Motel, west on 94, exit highway 26, about halfway to Madison. 
And that combined with the sitars, combined with the weird sort of G-rated Kama Sutra pictures. Because that's the thing, like, it didn't, nobody's really having sex in those pictures. It's more like a guy, I'm going to sit on your neck, and there's a swan. It's all very joyous sex, though, isn't it? I was talking to somebody completely randomly unconnected to this the other day about that book, The Joy of Sex, which was just everywhere in the 70s and 80s. Like, everybody, every parent had it on their shelf and stuff. And it totally just seems like a weird parody of that era where, you know, women are buying all those books. I remember my mum had the woman book that me and my brother weren't allowed to look in, but of course we did. I can't even remember what it was called, but it just had loads of naked women in it and stuff. You know, this is a clitoris and you know, just go and look at it. But it totally seems to be like a weird mishmash of that whole era where suddenly people became super aware of being good at sex and it being like a set, like a weird spiritual thing at the same time, you know, it became like a big thing. And I think that explains the sitars. But then you've got Klaus Kinski in leisureware, you know, working out behind the scenes. It sounds like you might have had a copy of Our Bodies Ourselves. Oh my god, that that sounds familiar. We called it the woman the woman, but we were we were forbidden to look in it, but of course so we would look in it. I'm so jealous. Yeah, it was all very much like and the and the joy of sex was just wonderful. I need to get a copy of that because it was just this hip, hippie dude and his wife pictures of them having sex. I remember somebody once saying that the he's they were like, wow, this couple looks like part of the Manson family. No, they fucking do. It's the best thing ever. They fucking do. It's just got this like weird vibe to it. But like people's I hear people go, you know, what do what did we do in our day? You know, we, we didn't have the internet. Kids today, they can just watch well, we had the joyous sex man. Don't diss that. <laughs> no, also we had to we had to earn our nudity. Yeah, we did. And then we got people with beards, uh, like really weird beards and huge bush. My mother never had the joy of sex, but I, I knew some, some kids that weirdly enough, their parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, but they were like bikers and they were super liberal. They were really cool. Like, and, but they had the joy of sex. And like, as soon as the parents left, we were like, Hey, like, what's in this? And yeah, no, my mother had like medical textbooks because she was a nurse so that's how i had to learn about the female body which was it did the job we all needed a klaus kinski what was it institute what's it called this institute of sexual fulfillment yes i think so yeah we yeah. all needed that that's what we need i know i love how we can just totally derail this to talk about filth even though there's not really any in the film but but you know it inspires that because you start thinking klaus kinski in an institute, whole library full of filth. You know, they got some dissards locked away in the in the back room there. You know, that could be something to do with the ninth plateau. You <laughs> know, and and it just gets your brain. Anyone else in that role would not provoke that same reaction. Oh God, who else could play that role? Well, and just the name Zuckerbrot is fantastic. Like Jack Lemon peering into like one of the symposiums about like preventing uh, premature ejaculation and hearing Klaus Kinski talk about that, like he's never had that. He would have been better staying there because that guy needed a needed a good blowjob or something, didn't he? He probably doesn't even know what kind of lingus is. He's like the clitoris. What's that? <laughs> that would frighten him. I'm sorry. The Iron Duke of censorship would be way too offended. 
be careful, Heather, because you're going to get some man writing in now saying we're being unfair to Jack Lemon. He was just doing his best. He just loved his wife and these mean women are laughing at him. Why do you think it's weird that he's tracking her menses? Absolutely perfect. He's just a caring husband. You know, he just loves his wife. He just, you know, he's just stalking her and trying to manipulate her by blaming her for his suicide. He doesn't have to give her an orgasm because how dare she? Yeah, I think this is a good learning lesson. If you're a male listening to us talk about this and you are having this reaction, I think you need to find this Institute of Sexual Fulfillment. Or the Gobbler. Or the Gobbler. Only Heather could know of a place called the Gobbler. It has the best commercial. I'm going to send you guys the commercial. They even had a jingle that it's like, it's the Gobble, 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 Gobbler. Gobbler. Like, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. Well, it's either the Gobbler Supper Club or the Cackle Shack Restaurant. The Cackle Shack would be a great place to have a symposium on premature ejaculation. Like, K- Kinski, what's the opposite of premature ejaculation? Like, super mature ejaculation? That's sting. That's when he can go for hours. You that's know? Ki- that's <laughs> probably, the tantric. That's probably Kinski, too. Like, it's like super load, you know? Oh, no, like, he totally had the sting thing going on, didn't he? He totally, absolutely had the sting thing going on there. You know, it'd be at least six hours just going for it, you know? Channeling. We are about to reach the eighth plateau. It's just just lying there erect, you know, just flailing. You know, at that point, it's all flop sweat. I mean. Oh, I just had a thought, actually, though. It's interesting that he has Klaus, you know, this German interloper, this European interloper in America. Because as much as we had permissiveness in the 80s, it also was the era of, like, Mary Whitehouse and, uh, I know me and Heather always talk about the, you know, the parental advisory stickers and bloody typical gore and oh, don't even get me started on the, the stating this coming for your kids and all that so it, i just thought you know the whole thing about him being german i love germans not to stereotype but there is always that kind of more of a perversity about certain german characters and Klaus definitely in fact he's probably responsible for that entire stereotype but Wilder is Austrian, so I wonder if he is commenting on, like, American prudishness or what he saw as prudishness, because that certainly haunted him for a lot of his career. Put it that way, I know he was really hurt over Kiss Me Stupid because the critics just really, you know, and it's not that crass. It's a little less subtle than his earlier stuff, but, you know, he had critics saying they wanted him deported. They wanted him sent back to Austria and stuff, so... Uh, so I, I do wonder if he was just uh, having a deliberate pop at this weird Puritanism. Although he, he kind of leaves religion out of it, outside of Walter Matthau. Being a priest. Being a priest, which I love. Just does that weird little Irish accent as well. When they pull him over and you think the gig's up and then they're like, Oh, can you give him the last rites? <laughs> he realizes he shot the right guy. There might be a little bit of a plot hole in this movie, just possibly. Because now that they know that the witness is going to be there, the cops put up this whole like barricade and nobody's allowed in the city center. And that's why Matthau does this whole 
Irish accent. And they're like, oh, well, he's a good guy. He can get through. He's got to get someplace. But when he gets back to the hotel, it's like within minutes, Lemon shows up. And then later on, Zuckerbrock shows up. And then Paul the Prentice, Cecilia shows up. And I'm like, how did they all get through the barricades? <laughs> That's the point. I just assumed they'd already been in there. But um, I hadn't noticed that. Thanks, Mike. I think they saw, the ne- they saw the necklace. They were oh, like... Oh, <laughs> okay. He just pulls up the necklace. Oh, no, doesn't Klaus say something about... No, that's in the reception, isn't it? When he's like, I'm his doctor. I'm I'm a doctor. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's earlier on. The other interesting thing is that they... So they go back to the hotel, and all eventually all four of these characters meet at the hotel. But Lemon goes in there... And he decides, I'm okay with everything. I'm going to commit suicide. So let me buy all of this lighter fluid here near the front desk of this hotel. <laughs> it's like the sundry shop has all this lighter fluid. I'm like, okay, great. Give me three. I'll take three of those. I love the lady. It's just like, oh, you're a heavy smoker, huh? Like, God, he really is a horrible human being because then i mean we he's find gross. out don't we find out at the end that he set fire to the entire clinic he burns down the whole clinic yeah probably trying to kill them he's a jealous little shitbag who can't accept that he just treated his wife not very well he probably killed poor gary allen and his sex doll that motherfucker okay now i just i officially hate him now i love gary allen and on top of that the thing, too, is, like, now I'm remembering, not only did he leave his first wife and their three kids. Oh, fuck. I forgot about that. He abandons his family to torture poor Paula Princess with 12 years of no orgasms. He was obviously very young, you know, 12 years, so, like, what, she was, like, in her late teens or something. I mean, midlife crisis, man. Having uh. a midlife crisis, abandons his family, kind of gets her into this little thing where she does what he wants for 12 years, and that's the fucking cheat to kick off when she's like, no, mate, bye. Yeah, and then uh, do not even think about his kids. Oh, whatever, I hate him. Yeah, he's going to burn himself and, and over, you know, and then goes and kills somebody and ends up in exile anyway. He's a shitbag. I don't generally like the whole mistaken identity thing, but I did really appreciate how they uh, managed to mix up Mathau and Lemon because Zuckerbrot has never seen either one of them, so that he mm-hmm. assumes that Mathau is the Lemon character and ends up giving him the shot, and then that kind of ruins what Mathau's trying to do with this assassination attempt. But I did really appreciate that. And then uh, the way that... Lemon is talking to Zuckerbrot about himself, but using Mathau as like the the double type of thing. And then eventually Paul Apprentice comes in and kind of blows the whole thing. But I did really like all of that exchange going on and just hearing what a shit he is from Zuckerbrot. Yeah, that is like classic Wilder. It's one of the best scenes, I think. So he always had this thing like with the masquerade, people pretending to be someone else or getting mixed up with someone else or doubles and things like that and he doesn't really use it in this outside of that one scene and it's flat out one of the funniest scenes in the film because it's just so well played and the the fact that you know the doctor comes in doesn't know what he's talking about he's just going on about how terrible this guy is i mean that is pure vintage wilder that is Oh, especially him being like, oh, man, he's he's more handsome than I thought he would have been. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a bigger <laughs> dick. <laughs> 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 
Richard knows what's going on, and he doesn't give a shit enough about his supposed buddy, the titular no, buddy. No, he's going to let him, you know, take the injection and everything, because he's just like, he is. He's a horrible, passive-aggressive little, totally of the type that we see today, where you see those guys on social media that just make an absolute pain in the ass out of themselves, and then they go, but I'm a nice guy, you know, why doesn't she want my niceties? Why do they always go for assholes? That's what well, that's what she he'd be saying about Klaus. You know, they always go for the assholes when Klaus actually isn't an asshole. I like him in this. When he's like, let him, you know, let him. He's the voice of reason. Yeah, let him. He's not going to go through with it. He's just trying to get her back. I mean, Klaus Kinski could and has played lecherous so much, but he does not appear lecherous in this movie. Not as a sex doctor. It's great. If I pull a Prentice, I love it when she's like, like basically just kind of almost roughing up his hair and being like, Shotzi. She is just so happy to have had all of these orgasms and doesn't want it to end. And I'm like, I don't blame you, lady. Don't blame you at all. I also love like the the physical seeing those two together because Paula Princess is like this leggy, very tall lady, and Klaus is more of a compact. Which I, by the way, I got so mad when Jack Lemmon's character calls him a pick me. I'm like, motherfucker, you do not talk about my Klaus that way. <laughs> Paula Prentice is five nine. Jack Lemmon's five nine. How tall is Klaus Kinski? I mean, he can't be. She's five. Oh God, I'm five nine. So like, so Kinski. <laughs> He's only five eight. So it's not like there's that much of a difference. They look them. so different, though. Well, she's is definitely that not wearing deliberately heels. Deliberately shot that way, though. Is it not deliberately shot that way? Because she looks a lot taller than Jack Lemon at one point. Oh yeah, she looks like she's like six two in this movie. She's great in everything too. Like even like lesser movies. I mean, like Saturday the Fourteenth is not a classic, but I love her in that movie. Like she's great. Well, and she and Richard Benjamin are just such a power couple. It's like, man, that's awesome. But yeah, she, she in uh, the film Move with uh, Elliot Gould, I love her in that. Oh, man. I mean, even like Where the Boys Are, which I do have a soft spot <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> Come on, Connie Francis. But yeah, she's she's amazing. Now, Richard Benjamin, I you know he could, he's taken her to some plateaus. Oh, God, yeah. All the way to level nine, baby. Level nine. Gonna have to keep this now as the ranking. We should do a Hell's Bells cat about the plateaus. We already did one on the hats. Well, we've had the hats. The hats have had a lot of uh, room on Hell's Bells, courtesy of Heather. It was a no hatter. <laughs> Jack Lemon's character is a no hatter for sure. Ken- Kensky Zuckerbrot is like a three hatter. That's like optimal. Like you're not gonna put that hat on. What are the hats again? Is this is from the grind um, Eddie Mueller's Grindhouse book, where uh, distributors in the '60s at grindhouses they would have a, a hat rating uh, as code for like how sexy and, and hence successful movie was because these guys would come in with their hats and then they put their hats on their lap and they have a, a little they have a hand party and if a film to terrible not sexy it's a no hatter if it's a if it's decent decent box office is like one to two hatters three hatter is like it's it's the guys are i mean they're spanking it i guess three times in their hats and then and it's like boom box office so i love that that has always stuck with me and and especially because a lot of the films i love are total no hatters but yeah zucker brought a three hatter lemon's character is a no hatter what would you say uh, matt Bow is in this film 
he's kind of sexy. I, I, I have to admit, he's kind of sexy in this. Not as sexy as Klaus, but he's he's got his own thing going on, you know? How about Dana Elkar, the uh, Captain Hubris? He doesn't know how to. And <laughs> <laughs> Bagley Jr., those are three hatters. Oh, okay. I would say, yeah. <laughs> I, I like Captain Hubris quite a bit, and I love that his name is Captain Hubris as well. But yeah, I really like him, and especially when he gets the idea of switching out the Rudy Disco Gambiola <laughs> for one of the cops. And that, of course, when like the tall cop volunteers, the short cop volunteers, and he's just like, no, you, you, you're going to switch clothes with Rudy here. And uh, yeah, I really like uh, film, Phil Formicola as uh, as Rudy Disco Gambola and this whole thing. And the, again, mistaken identity. And I have to say that that both that mistaken identity with Matthew and Lemon and this mistaken identity with Rudy Disco Gambola, that stuff with the victim is not there in any of the other versions of this that I saw. The stuff with the mistaken identity with Matthew and Lemon is there, but it plays out differently. So, and I think that, that Wilder, obviously, uh, I mean, the man is very talented. He actually handles it better than any of the other directors that I saw. But I, I really like this whole thing of them actually spending time with the victim and you actually really want Matthew to succeed in killing a man. It's just like, yes, do it. You have to do it. Like he, of course he's under penalty of death, you know, that they're going to cut him up into a million pieces if, if he doesn't succeed, but it's just like, yeah, yeah. Kill this guy. That's another thing about this film being more set in the seventies though, is having a character with a nickname, a disco with the white suit. And he, I love that he's dancing. Like, (laughs) Yeah. Why are you dancing? They're going to try to kill you. The whole gangster thing, though, seems like a weird throwback to some like it hot, which was in itself a weird throwback to the 30s. So there's some like really bizarre stuff going on with eras here, almost like he's he's sort of got a real weird mixture of stuff going on. None of it particularly connected to the actual era that it's in. Could we say that Lebens' character is like the is like the worst kind of monkey's paw? For Mathau, Mathau finally gets to have his like Tahitian getaway. He's watching the game. He's got some. Looks like he's got a picture of sangria. He's into just for that day he spent with fucking Jack Lemon. If the camera just went around the corner, it'd be like Morgan Freeman and and Tim uh, Robbins having drinks, and then on this side of it, it's. Walter Matthau with all of these Polynesian people, including the topless lady. So we get some nice gratuitous nudity. That was that was good. And then, and this poor woman has like Jack Lemon scooping on her. So there's going to be another beautiful woman that gets disappointed. But even then, though, he doesn't notice she's got her fucking tits out. He just starts going on about his bloody bedding and stuff, his mattress. I'm surprised he's not trying to cover her up, Mr. Censorship. Yeah, it's a funny ending because it's just like, oh, for God's sake, just shoot him in the head. Please, don't let him ruin this for you. Why do we bring back human sacrifice? Oh my god, Mike, that was really good. <laughs> Thank you. Because <laughs> I, I, I didn't know how to really do that impersonation, so I'm glad that you did. <laughs> I love the guy goes into details. It's like, well, the, the moon must be at this, you know. And he's like, we don't have to deal with the particulars or something like that. See, I, I make him sound like he's from Long Island. I can't do that. I can't do that accent. 
this island too that he's on it the other thing that it reminded me of was uh speaking of silence of the lambs the anthrax island where they want to put dr lecter because it's like well it used to be a leper colony and then uh the lepers all left when they started testing the a-bomb here <laughs> you say anthrax island and i'm like oh my god joey belladonna's love to go to anthrax island i'm like oh man <laughs> put some you got topless ladies you got thrash metal you got watch them at now and then sucker brought ends up on the island kinski's totally wearing like a speedo oh he totally would he's but he's got a speedo on into that leisure way you just know it that's me or he's just free balling he's probably just free balling he looks like a weird pe teacher i don't know if because mike you're about the same age as me that thing in the 70s where PE teachers would always have that like thing and then they'd have a fucking speedo on under if it. If he had a whistle around his neck rather than a, p- a penis necklace. It's like, what was that? <laughs> it was so greasy. <sighs> it's like, do people want to look like they should be barred for being around children? Well, <laughs> like, <laughs> those like weird little tight shorts they used to wear and it wasn't nice. It wasn't like when you see Lemmy in them. It's the gym teacher from Carrie where you've got those really tight shorts, but then you put those on a man and he would wear the same thing. And he totally looks like that in this. It's like, what is that about? Why is he dressed like a PE teacher? Why do people wear short shorts? Like, I'm, I'm like, do you want you I have no to idea. Out? I have totally... literally no. No, that was a thing. Guys' balls coming out of their shorts. That was a total thing. Oh, no. I've never heard that before. Oh, and then they started putting like nets in them, I think. <laughs> but in Alan Partridge, there's a running joke in one of the, the Alan Partridge season when he lives in a hotel. It's a running joke because Alan Partridge wears those sort of outdated, because that was 90s, but he's got like 80 short, and his balls keep coming out, and Lynn, his assistant, <laughs> keeps going, Alan! <laughs> It's like one episode. That was an actual thing, though. You didn't want to be around guys in those shorts. Because it's just be like, don't don't look. Well, it wasn't there like a period where like, because I remember seeing the music video for Minute Works, Be Good Johnny. And Colin Hay as the dad is wearing these like, they're not quite nut huggers. They're like, it's like somebody took dress slacks and cut them like mid thigh. But he's wearing a tie. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like, where, where it's just like, I want to show my the my thighs to the world. Shorts then- were totally shorts in that era. Like they they meant shorts. I don't know what that was about, but it's never come back. Thank God. Yeah, that's that needs to stay. But from my neighbor, every summer now walks around speedo in his fucking garden. So please don't do that. It's never going to be somebody that looks like Kinski or Lemmy. It's going to be somebody, you know, it's going to be like, you know, I don't know, like Abe Vigoda or David, or no, David Crosby now. Like, like, hey, ladies, drink this in. And you're like, Jesus, no. <laughs> What's Walter Matau wearing at the end? He hasn't got shorts on, has he? I think he does have shorts on. Does well, he? I don't know. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with Miles Chapin right after these brief messages. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. We are going to hear from Miles Chapman, who played Eddie the Bellhop and Buddy Buddy. And we started off by talking about, well, how the film's possibly a little bit outdated. If you take the bones of the story and you, you pull it out and shake it off, it's, it's really good. 
But I mean, I did watch the movie, as as you know, you know, you sent me the links and everything, and I just, to me, it doesn't work. It's just it's creaky because of the because of all the other stuff. Sometimes with pieces that are aged. I mean, we had this with hair, you know, when it came out, there was a confusion. Is this a period piece or is this, you know, because the era that hair was was set in was only like 10 years earlier than when it was released. With the perspective we have today, you say, oh, it's a period piece, which it was when we shot it. But Buddy Buddy, I remember going to see it on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the late lamented New Yorker Theater. And I was one of the few people in the audience and I just was groaning because I, no, no, I just, I thought this sensibility is, is just, it's just, I mean, I was a hip kid, you know, and this was a, just a groaner. The whole thing was, I mean, a sex clinic with sitar music playing and the, that wonderful character actor, I forget his name, running around with the inflatable doll under his arm. And, oh, my girlfriend sprung a leak. I mean, this this is like, you know, Billy Wilder is, is really hip and really cool. And re- I mean, I just watched Sabrina. I stumbled onto that the other night. I mean, God, and all the genres he worked in. And he was so bright and funny on the set and just so, you know, just of the moment. And that movie is so not, you know. And Methow's character is just like, oh, I mean, Trabuco. And I remember working with him thinking, is that it? Is this is what it's going to be? You know, I mean, where's Whiplash Willie? You know, where's – and I just caught a couple of minutes of um, – Grumpy Old Men 2, right? With Sophia Loren. I mean, God, I'll watch Sophia Loren read the phone book, right? But it's just the whole thing just – it's just like a, like a fallen souffle. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but it was really hard to watch. Just And it's still – because I was thinking, well, I haven't seen it since that screening on the Upper West Side. I thought, oh, time will change. I'm an old, different person. No, I had the same reaction to it, you know. So anyway, that's my two cents. You had a lot of stuff coming out all around the same time, all around 81, early 82. I mean, we talked about Pandemonium before, but what was the timeline as far as Funhouse, the TV, I think it was a half an hour thing, Bulba and Buddy Buddy, what got shot first? The timing in Hollywood terms was really good because there weren't a lot of young, young actors at that time. You know, I never went to college, so I had like a four-year advantage on all my the actors that are actually my age and i had my my 15 minutes and it sort of you know it's feast or famine in hollywood i mean you you rapidly find out where you are in the food chain and if you have any clout at all at a party in hollywood around the time of buddy buddy i ran into a guy i forget his name i should remember his name he was a manager and michael keaton was his client and he said, you know, my client is really really pissed at you and so am i, I said, about what because you've got to do buddy buddy you've got to work with billy wilder and I said, oh, well, you know, and he said, no, no, really. Like, you know, everybody wanted that that part because they wanted to work with Billy Wilder. And I said, well, I guess. And I was a lucky guy. And then I ran into Michael Keaton. I met him at a party a couple of years later. And I said, is, is that true? And he goes, oh, man, could have killed you. Could have, like, stabbed you in the back. It's like, geez, you know. Okay, fine. You know, I mean, it's just it's the way Hollywood works. I mean, my I, I was with CAA um, and I was on their list of people in my type. And I was near the top of it, so you know my name got floated for all these 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 projects. But the thing is, none of them were hits. That's that's the problem. I mean, none of them scored big at the box office. So move back to New York. I mean, it's like I say this to young actors: if if you're dedicated to it 
And if you have even a, just a modicum of talent and, and some drive, you will get breaks. And it's not just actors, it's everybody. I mean, you just, you, you breaks and opportunities happen. You have to be really smart to recognize them and you have to be really smart to capitalize them in a, in a really good way. And you have to be very conscious of the choices that you make, whether you're aware that you're making choices or not, because you are. I mean, just what clothes you put on in the morning, you're making a choice. There's nothing you can throw on your body that isn't a choice. I was working a lot and I loved it. I loved working and I got really sick. <laughs> I got really, it was funny because I forget exactly, I think it was after Bulba, I got terrible bronchitis because I used to smoke too. Now, I didn't smoke a lot, but I, I really enjoyed it. I smoked non-filter cigarettes, but I got, I got this horrible bronchitis and I was just coughing and coughing. And, uh, and I really wanted to take some time off, but you can't, you know, I mean, well, you got to strike while the iron's hot, you know, make hay while the sun shines. All those cliches are absolutely true because you never know what's going to stick. It's like throwing spaghetti against the wall. You know, when something sticks, it's done. But I was very privileged to work at that time. I mean, Billy Wilder? I mean, my God. I know Stanley Kramer was like that too. You know, I got to work with Stanley Kramer. I mean, these guys were legends. These were Hollywood legends. You know, I've been incredibly privileged to work with those guys. And and it was I learned not only by osmosis, but but just learning. I mean, it's funny, everybody, everybody on the set of Buddy Buddy, all of us. And I used to I rode out to the set with Klaus Kinski, because you know I had enough clout that I had good billing and the limo picked me up and then picked Klaus Kinski up and then we'd ride to Riverside. All of us were reading Billy Wilder biographies. Dana Elkar, he had one in his dressing room. Every day player had it. Uh, you know, Nellie McQueen, Steve McQueen's wife, played the cigar woman in the hotel. And she was reading a Billy Wilder. You know, all of us were just like Billy Wilder, you know. And it was just remarkable. I mean, and he had more energy than anybody else in the set. But my take was it was, it was without a doubt, the most professional movie set I was ever on. So, sandut, I mean, without a doubt. Uh, and what that means, we can go into later. But it was just Hollywood movie making at such a level that I, I don't, it doesn't go on anymore. It just, it just doesn't. I mean, it was just – I mean, I, I was thinking watching Sabrina, you know, it's sort of like Hitchcock in that Billy Wilder knew – I mean, he, he was a writer – and, and, and then a director. And so he knew where he was going. I mean, he could almost edit it in the camera, you know, and, and you're cutting from, you know, a process shot to a location shot to a set interior to a location interior. And it all flowed. And that's the kind of professionalism I'm talking about, you know, and that's 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 what that's what Hollywood does better than, than anybody else. You know, and when it works, it's like seamless. I was looking, watching Sabrina and that was exactly it. I was just like, Oh my God. You know, when you watch a movie like, uh, to catch a thief and it's, it's just that, you know, let's cut from, you know, there's Grace Kelly in the back of the car and it's a process shot done in Culver city. And then we're going to cut to her getting out of the car and she's in Monaco. You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. It's just, it's just, it's, it's not necessarily storyboarded, but just the director has such an idea and he just knows where you're going that you just magic carpet ride time. I mean, you just, you're there. What do you want me to do? What, what do you want me to do? And it was funny because Billy loved actors and he liked sort of showing what to do, you know, which some actors, some directors think it's a no, no. I don't care. I mean, I tend to do the same scene twice, right? With Lemon and Matt Fowl. And he goes, okay, so we'll do this twice. And, you know, you're the kind of person who, you know, 
who does this every time somebody checks in, but you have two different people, so you're very sensitive to that. And I said, right, no, I got that. And he says, and when you come over to the windows and you, you know, pull this down, I, I want it very, very, mm, mm. and I said, crisp. And he looked at me and he goes, yes, crisp, crisp. And then the entire day, he was walking around going, crisp. You know, somebody would say, what would you, how would you like this, Billy? And he goes, crisp, like this. It was just, I mean, it was just, that's like eating strawberry shortcake for an actor, you know, when, when you say something to a director and they pick up on it for whatever reason, you know, you know, and then also there was a thing, you know, cause I had to, I had to come back. There was a shot outside the door and uh, I had forgotten all this till I watched the movie. You know, I'm, I've got this like champagne and a bucket and the glasses and the thing. And I was supposed to unlock the door. And I said to him, how am I going to get my keys out? And he goes, well, you know, that's your problem. And I said, no, 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 you got to give me a zzz. And he goes, what's a zzz? And I said, you know, zzz on my belt, zzz. And he turned to the prop gun. And he said, get him a zzz, get him a zzz. And they ran in with a zzz, you know, and it was just, I love that. <laughs> I mean, that was fun. It's only a deeply secure professional. Can you spritz like that, you know? I am so curious. What were those car rides with Klaus Kinski like? He didn't, he didn't have much to say. He was not what I was expecting. I mean, look at him in that movie with the hair and the glasses and the thing. I think he was like bucking for Hollywood stardom. And I don't think it was meant to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it, it's a different Kloskinski in that movie. I mean, that movie is so mixed up. And there's Paula Prentice, who's wonderful, but she's like in some kind of like sex farce from the 60s. You know, and then there's Klaus Kinski, who's trying to give it this, you know, this Germanic gravitas, you know. And Walter Matthau, who knows what the fuck Walter Matthau was doing in that movie, you know. And Jack Lemmon, the most generous actor I've ever worked with, bar none. So we do the shot where, like, you know, I'm outside the door. I hear it. You know, I open the door. Oh, my God. Close up. Cut to me running in and there's water flowing and Jack Lemmon's eye in the tub. And it's like, okay. And, you know, Billy says, okay, see what you can do. Get up. You know, and the, they wanted the gag with the pipe and the thing, right? And spray the water everywhere. You know, you get that. Um, so I get up and I and I, I do that. And um, one thing about that set, professional set, was around 4.30, 4.45, you could see that the end was in sight. And if you were working with Math Out, it would be like, Billy, I I got a marvelous story to tell you, but, you know, the throat's a little dry. And then at five o'clock, bang, we're done. Over. And everybody goes on their separate way. So in the middle of this, up, five o'clock, okay, we got the master. We'll come in for the close-up tomorrow morning for a shot. Okay, good. I'm, I'm dripping wet, and everybody's going home. Well, luckily, the lady with the hair dryer was there, and, you know, she drew me off. Next day, I get in, I go to the set, and it's right back where we started. And they're dousing me with water, and it wasn't warm water, okay? I guess, and Lemon's in the bathtub, and he's just looking at me, and under his breath, he's going, just find it. Just find it, kid. Just wherever you have to go, just find it like this. Just saying that to me. Just to me. That's generosity. You know, a lot of actors will really fuck you up. A lot of actors will, you know, if you're doing a two-shot and it's like over their shoulder, they'll do this. So it's unusable. They will do these little upstagey film tricks so that they look good and you look bad. Jack Lemmon was just the opposite. He would do – I mean, he's Jack Lemmon for God's sakes. What, are they going to feature me? I mean, come on. But he's just the opposite. It was like anything to make a performance, you know, better. Okay. So the story is, that story is not over yet because about five, six months later, back in New York, uh, we had a party for my father. Uh, at the, the Century Association, which is a very well-known 
men's club. Now it's now it's a club, but then I think it was all only men then. So it was I think it was 60th birthday party for my father, and it was a very very stormy night. I mean it was famous blizzard in New York, and we invited like 110 people, and 108 of them showed up. And my brothers and I, well, I'm the youngest of four boys, we all had red bow ties, and we'd, we'd done all this stuff. Complete surprise to my father, okay? Now, among the guests was a very famous man named uh, Abe Rosenthal, A.R. Rosenthal. He was the, the editor of the New York Times. You know, he's still talked about as, you know, Abe Rosenthal, the great New York Times editor, legendary editor. And, you know, I don't know if you know any people that have ever worked at the Times. They take themselves pretty seriously. You know, New York Times, the great lady, paper of record, all that stuff. All right. So I'm talking to, to Abe Rosenthal. And I don't really know who he is. I mean, you know, Abe, I'm Abe, I'm Miles, you know, like this. And maybe I gleaned or something, but I, I don't give a shit. I'm not intimidated. That's my point. So he says, so what do you do, kid? And I said, well, I actually am an actor. And he goes, oh, you're an actor. Oh, well, what kind of stuff do you do? And I said, well, you know, I do whatever somebody will hire me to do. I do a lot of commercials. I do voiceovers. Lately, I've been doing a bunch of movies. Oh, movies. I love movies. Yeah. I just got back from Hollywood, he said. He said, I saw the most amazing thing. And I said, really? What was that? And he goes, well, I was on the set of Billy Wilder's new movie. And it was at the MGM Studios. And it was just amazing. You know, they had this whole set built 12 feet off the floor because they needed like laundry chutes. And it was a hotel. And it was just this amazing set. And, and they were doing this scene with Jack Lemon had just tried to kill himself and there was this water pipe and there was this young kid playing this bellhop and he was getting all covered with water take after take after take and they hadn't finished the sequence and all of a sudden they said cut we're finished for the day and I thought oh this poor kid he's going to be you know I've been watching him get drenched and dried off and then the next morning he's going to have to go right and do the same thing and I said yeah yeah that was me and he goes no no come on like I said no that was me I you know like this and it was funny because my mother sort of saw out of the side eye, the side glance that I was talking to Abe Rosenthal. And she came over to me later and she said, what were you, what were you like lecturing him about? And I said, tell me this story. And I was just like, you know, I was there. I was there, Charlie, you know. And then later somebody took a picture at the party and it's like a side shot of me and Abe Rosenthal. And he's sitting there listening and I'm like this, which is like talking to him. And somebody sent it to my parents with the caption, you know, the only time anybody ever got Abe Rosenthal to be quiet, you know. I haven't thought about this. I mean, this is what I love doing these kinds of things is because, you know, it just brings up all these all these kind of memories and stuff. Well, mostly pleasant. Later that same year at the New York Film Festival, I think they gave Billy Wilder an award. And afterwards, there was a party. Big fancy apartment on Sutton Place. And it was where, um, oh, God, Josh – Oh, God, my brother Ted will kill me. I can't remember. The great director, mostly stage director, uh, and his wife was a great socialite. And anyway, they had the reception after the New York Film Festival. And I'm at this party, and I was talking with Billy Wilder, and up comes John Lindsay, the former mayor of New York. He says, uh, do, do you mind if I butt in? And I said, oh, no, 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 my pleasure. Um, Billy Wilder? John Lindsay, John Lindsay, Billy. <laughs> it's just like it's like a New Yorker cartoon, you know. And then somebody somebody said uh, uh, to Billy, you know, have you met the guest of honor or something? And he he, he was so funny. He said, "No, I have met the mayor. I have met the artist." And he pointed at me, and I have yet to meet the hostess. You know, it's very funny. You know, just the guy, the guy had it's true. I mean, just that kind of a wit. You know. Because obviously he was the center of attention on the set, 
uh, and had more energy than anybody else. And I don't know exactly how old he was. I guess he was born like 1906, something like that. So, you know, you do the math. So, but, I mean, he was Billy Wilder to everybody. Every, every grip, every cameraman, every, I mean, all of us were like, we're on a Billy Wilder so he's got a you know what crab dolly is i think so yeah it's got the the wheels coming out right it's like a little go-kart with an arm on it that goes up and down okay and 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 for years it was like the standard on movie sets because you could basically move the camera up and down and you could camera could move during a shot cameraman camera operator could sit on it like this there was room for somebody else to sit on it it's not used so much anymore because it's big and it's heavy and it's clunky anyway it's run by a key grip there's a their key grip is a guy in the back is and, and there's a little t-bar and it turns and you can lock it you can turn it like this and the front wheels will go like that and it goes in that direction or you throw the thing over and you turn it like this and all four wheels turn so it kind of glides in a diagonal, right? And then right in front of that T-bar, there's a little, um, that looks like a spigot, like a spigot from a garden hose. And you turn that and it sends the hydraulic arm with the camera attached to the end up or down. So all those shots in the lobby of the hotel in Riverside, which we shot on location, the camera was on a crab dolly. The dolly is sitting there and Billy's setting up the next shot which I'm in, and the camera's like way up top. It's like six, seven feet high. And Billy Wilder says, okay, and I'll, I won't do the accent because everybody that works with Billy Wilder does the German accent. It's just like everybody who works with Milos Forman ends up doing Milos's accent. It's like, so I won't do that. Okay, so he says basically, okay, this is what I want. I want a simple Sydney Lumet. He said a Sydney Lumet 40 millimeter lens right here on these two. Great. And I think I was my own stand-in, right? So I'm sitting there like this. And then he turns around and he's talking to somebody and the key grip turns the spigot and the camera starts coming down. And he's looking at Billy, waiting for Billy Wilder to say, that's it. Okay. So Billy never turns around. So the camera goes, boom, and ends up six inches off the floor, right? So Billy Wilder turns around and looks at this and everybody's looking at him. And he looks at the guy and goes, and he says to the key grip, he goes, what are you doing? I asked for Sidney Lumet and you give me Bob Fosse. Bring it down, bring it down. I want Sidney Lumet. No, no, no. Bring it up. I don't want Bob Fosse. You know, I mean, come on. I don't have the presence of mind to do things like that. You know? Yeah. So th- those are, those are my, my, my great Billy Wilder stories. Yeah. I uh, did. The audition was very simple. I mean, basically I went to the set one day and I must've had a lot of spin on me because it was like in between scenes and it's just like, Somebody said, here, this is, you know, this is Miles and goes, hi, how are you? Like this. Okay. So you got the script? Yes. You know the scene? Yes. Like this. Okay. You can do it. I said, yeah, I, I, sure I can do it. You know, he goes, okay, okay. Thank you. We'll let you know. And that was it. Didn't even have you do it. Well, I mean, there was a lot of film on me. I had some buzz on me too. And that's, that counts in Hollywood. <laughs> you know, I, and also, I mean, you know, Eddie the Bellhop has been in more than one Billy Wilder movie. Let's you know, I, I don't know who the other actors were, but I mean, Some Like It Hot has a great Eddie the Bellhop in it, you know, and that's Billy Wilder, the writer. You, you know, you got to have Eddie the Bellhop, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It's just, it's great stuff, you know. You said the set was the most professional you've ever been on. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew their lines, showed up on time, boom, go to work. I mean, just Jack Lemon, find it, kid, find it, find it, find it. That was it. We're going to shoot. We're going to start. If, if this set call is nine o'clock, the first shot's going to happen at nine ten, and we're going to end at five o'clock. We're all going to go home and have a martini and come back the next morning and do it again. You know, but it was just very like clockwork. 
You know, everybody knew their job. Everybody was a professional. Everybody went about their work. My time, I mean, I only was like 10 days over a three or four week period. So I wasn't on this set a lot, but it was just, it just worked. You know, nobody was pulling attitude. Nobody was like when coming out of the trailer, just completely professionally done. And the conversation was pitched at a very high level. I mean, there obviously was a lot of communication. I mean, this was Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, Billy Wilder, Is Diamond, IAL Diamond. I mean, okay, I, uh, I, I got to preface this by saying that, uh, I, you know, I'm from New York. I'm a native New Yorker. And my family goes back in New York many, many generations. And my mother, same thing. And my father, same thing. Obviously, that's the generations. I went to a, a very famous progressive school called the Dalton School because my grandmother sort of had six children. And then in the middle of it, she got religion. And I don't mean that literally because uh, the older four or three boys all went to very straight-laced schools uh, where they had to wear coats and ties and beanies. And then the younger three children all went to this progressive school where like, you know, Martha Graham was the dance teacher kind of thing, right? And so my mother went there and she hung out with a rather famous group of people were her classmates like Gloria Vanderbilt and Una O'Neill Chaplin and Carol. She married five times, but at that time was married to Walter Matthau. So my first day in the makeup trailer, I'm sitting there next to him, famously grumpy guy. And yeah, sure. And you know, the thing is, if you're the new guy on the set, don't speak until you're spoken to, right? So Matthau is sitting there and he's doing like a crossword puzzle or the, you know, the racing form, whatever it is. And I come in the chair and somebody says, okay, this is Miles. So I sit down next and, uh, and he goes like this. This doesn't really look at me. I'm sitting there and I'm waiting. And then I turn to him and I said, my mother says to say hello to your wife. And he puts the pencil down and he turned to me and he goes, did you go to Dalton too? And I said, yes, I did. And he goes, where else did you go to school? And I said, well, I went to uh, Phillips Exeter Academy and I never went to college because, you know, if I had, I'd be a you know senior because I'm, I'm whatever age, I'm 22, 23. And he goes, yeah. So uh, where did your mother go to school? Well, like this and your father. Now, at that time, my father happened to be the dean of the School of the Arts at Columbia University. So I said, you know, my dad was the dean of the School of the Arts. So Matthew was like, uh, 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 and he goes back to his thing. Right. So about a half an hour later, I'm on the set, and Jack Lemon comes up to me, and in that way of his, he goes, uh, "Walter, Walter tells me that uh, that that you went to uh, Phillips Exeter," and I went, "Yeah, I did." And he said, "Well, I, I went to Andover. I'm an Andover boy," and I said, "That's you know, that's great. I'm not supposed to like you, right? We're big rivals, but we we laughed about that. You know, preppy actors in Hollywood, and we talked." And then about half an hour later, Is Diamond comes up to me. He said, uh, I hear your, your father uh, works at Columbia. And I said, yeah, no, he's the dean of the School of the Arts. And Is Diamond goes, I went to Columbia. Now, my point in telling you this is not to you know show off the schools that I went to, but it's to say that of all the things that you expect to be a conversation starter or an icebreaker in Hollywood, New England boarding schools and these kinds of educational institutions is not that. And yet on that set, you know, that was my that was my entree. That was my ticket. I mean, I, I remember 
I was staying with my friends, uh, Gloria and Willard Hike, you know, the people that, 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 you know who they are. They had this big house in Brentwood and I was staying with them when I was shooting and they were just like amazed. They, I mean, they would like pump me for information because they wanted, I mean, you know, they're real film people and they wanted to know like every day. So what did Billy say? What did he do? How did he move the camera? Did he know what he was doing? Did he have to talk to anybody? You know, and that's why where the professionalism come out. It's just, you know, and like the first day I came home, it's like, it's only seven o'clock. Why are you home? It's like you were in Riverside. I said, five o'clock. It's all over. The next shot is in that sequence to just pick up with that next shot, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, because a movie like Howard the Duck, you know, we're sweating bullets every day. You know, oh, my God, we're going into golden time, overtime, people, you know, reaping, wailing, gnashing their teeth, you know. I knew you had, you had worked with Hiking Cats before on French Postcards. How did you meet them? Uh, on French Postcards. Yeah. You know, that's, that's another story. Uh, and and I, I can't wait for that movie to get the recognition that it's never really gotten because I think that's a lovely, lovely little movie. You know, I, I think it's probably of the movies that I've done, my favorite. I mean, there's an innocence about it. There's a, there's a sort of a, a just a kind of a wonderful, youthful thing, you know, with a little cynicism on top because Willard, you know, can write the pungent line, you know. But uh, no, we, I mean, we were shot that in Paris. You know, we were on location for like five months. We all got along. And I mean, I cooked the Thanksgiving dinner at their apartment and we just became fun friends. And then, you know, they had this huge house and, uh, you know, they come and stay. And, and Willard still, you know, Gloria left us about a year and a half, two years ago. And, and Willard uh, sold the big house and he lives in an apartment in uh, Wilshire, in the Wilshire district now. And I haven't seen it, but, you know, we, I mean, we email every couple of weeks. I mean, it's just, we, we keep, right? I, I, I missed, he was actually, he was supposed to come here to New York right in March, two years ago, when COVID hit, he was going to come for a photography. And I, I missed it because I was going to have a dinner party. I said, look, come to my house because, you know, you know, this is where I live. And it's it's pretty big, you know, and I've got a big dining room table here. And I got a, you know, I, I'm a good cook. And I used to cook in their house a lot. I cook a lot of dinner parties with their, their place. And I said, so you can have 10 people. You invite them. And we never, we didn't get to do that, which is too bad because, you know, I mean, the people that I would hang out with with them was... I mean, Hollywood royalty again. Uh, no, but they're just, they're just, their sensibility was really good, you know, and they're just really, really good friends. And then, of course, with the Howard the Duck thing, that was why they hired me because it was, it was like, help, we're going to make this movie. It's like, are you kidding? They're really going to make that thing? I mean, I was with them off and on when they were writing it. It was sort of like, can you believe that they're paying us to write this? And now it's like, can you believe they're going to pay us to make this? And then it was just, it was, again, a whole nother story, but, uh, Kind of a career ender in an odd way for a, number, for a number of people. But now that seems to be enjoying a bit of a renaissance, as the British say. So, hey, whatever, you know. Well, I'd love to have you back on, talk about that, talk about French postcards sometime. Sure, sure, sure. Well, it's actually, this is this kind of thing is, is fun. Yeah, and it's what we can do in COVID, you know, in, in, in these lockdown moments. You know, this, this is really where Zoom comes into its own. No, but I mean, buddy, buddy, it, it's sort of like, and this is sort of, sort of like the story of my life is, is like, you know, oh, you got to work with the people that, you know, rewrote Star Wars and wrote American Graffiti. Yeah, but I got to work with them on Howard the Duck, which is like an embarrassment. Oh, you got to work with Billy Wilder. Yeah, but I got to work with them on Buddy Buddy, which just, oh, bleh. it's just a totally flaccid movie, you know, whatever. I mean, it was, it was the experiences, you know, and to, to work with these guys. Oh, you know, it's really hard for the, older filmmakers to get movies made, you know, because movies have always been a young man's business. And so it's really, it's one of the reasons why I just don't want to live in, in LA, you know, because it's just, 
one of the people that I would hang out with 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 Willard and with Gloria uh, and became friends with was Stanley Donnan, and it was the same thing. I mean, Stanley Donnan, he invented a certain grammar for movie musicals. I mean, invented it. I couldn't get a movie made, you know, and it was just, it was just, you know, it's frustrating for these cats, you know, it really is. So, well, thank you so much for your time. It is always a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. We'll meet again in cyberspace. All right. We are back and we're talking about buddy, buddy. And as I mentioned, this was based on a play and there was a previous version. I said that before a pain in the ass, but there were actually several versions of this. In 1983, there was a Turkish film called Bas Balasi, which I managed to find that without subtitles, unfortunately, uh, over on YouTube and watch that yesterday. There was also a 2008 remake just called A Pain in the Ass. And there was an Indian film from 2012 called Bumbo, which uh, I've only seen the trailer for, but it looks amazing oh my god i want you mike sent us the trailer last we night we should have done the trailer reaction video oh god we should have i don't this- have any coffee and that was in my inbox this morning i was just like what the fuck mike there's also a movie called dead weight from 2002 it sounds very similar because there's the annoying guy and then there's the really like put together guy and i want to say that it's the dude from, um, it, and I could be wrong about this, but I want to say that it's the guy from Man Bites Dog that is one is the annoying guy in it. But it's got an amazing cast because Rosie De Palma is in it, uh, mostly known I'm for. I'm thinking this sounds this sounds familiar. Who directed it? It was Frederick Forestier and Alan Berberian. I don't know. That sounds familiar. It's a story of two types. Moltes, a criminal in prison, and Reggio, one of the guards. Crazy adventures happen when following a winner ticket to Africa. I don't get that. Winning a ticket to Africa. They compete in a rally and are chased by the Turk, a sworn enemy of Moltes. And yeah, Jiman Honsu is in it as well. So it's... Seems legit. I I found a copy of it late last night, and so I will be watching it uh, sometime today, hopefully. Maybe once the granddaughters leave. The rest of us didn't do our homework, so we're not very good. We were blind. We were blinded by Kinski. So I have to say, everything that we complained about with Buddy Buddy, or that Heather and I complained about with Buddy Buddy, <laughs> is basically done better in a pain in the ass so it's 1973 so the time feels right for this whole idea of the sex clinic clinic and stuff and it just it fits more in that timeline that we're talking about and the jack lemon character i don't think that he was married before i don't think that he left his wife he doesn't seem like that bad of a guy and like when you first meet him you don't get the feeling that he's a a piece of shit. And there's a moment in the film where you're not really sure who is killing all of these guys. And of course it's Lino Ventura and he's fantastic. But at first I was like, well, maybe it's this guy, maybe it's this Jacques Brel character, but no, it's, he's the one who's going to end up committing suicide. But yeah, it, uh, it really works. I have to say that it's a really very good film and uh, Nino Castelnuovo is the bellboy. He gets a lot more screen time than poor Miles Japen does. The whole idea of the cops and stuff, like 
there is no main cop character. I don't think we ever really get to know uh, the person that he's trying to kill. It really just concentrates on the bellhop, the two guys in the hotel, and then eventually we get to see the wife and the sex doctor. But the sex doctor is, he's older, and for whatever reason, I don't know if this was just the subtitles, but he keeps referring to the Lemon character's wife as his wife. It's almost like they've married again, but the Lemon character, more than anything, he's been trying to get his wife back by having a house built in Poissy, I think it is, and he's got all these pictures of the house that he's trying to show her, like, look what I've built for us, and trying to get her back that way. So yeah, he's he's a lot less annoying than the Jack Lemon character. Does the wife get the lesbian lover at the end, though? The end is very different. So the same thing where he tries to shoot the guy across the street and then the cops open fire in this one. He doesn't try to shoot the guy across the street. He actually like the gun goes off and the police just open fire on this hotel room and and they're throwing smoke bombs and all this. They end up shooting Lino Ventura in the arm. He goes and escapes through this hatch in the roof and meanwhile the jack lemon character is just like hey mr milan mr milan is the ventura character's name he's just like hey wait for me wait for me and he ends up chasing him the cops are chasing him what do you know they both get arrested and then cut to like really hard cut cut to them in prison and they're walking around the yard doing that and then the lemon character's like I think it'll work out, Mr. Millant. We'll we'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole end credits are just them and all of these other prisoners doing that walk around the prison yard, like getting their daily exercise. So it's really kind of a a grim ending, but I like it. See, I feel bad because I've always wanted to see the French version. And I got a friend of mine who's always saying, Oh, you gotta see the French version, you gotta see the French version. And I thought, I, I am absolutely terrible for like not just not fitting in pleasure watches. So I thought when this came up, oh, it'll be the perfect time to watch French version. But I didn't have time. It's like I'm cursed with this film because I do love the stuff that Molinaro did that I have seen. I'm not great on like in knowing much about French comedy from that area era it's more Italian for me but what I have seen I've really liked because it's got similar cynicism to it but I totally absolutely still need to see this one because Molinera did Dracula and Son which I absolutely adore I was going to ask you actually because there's a there's a is the a blow-up doll joke in the french version it isn't the sex clinic isn't as sexy it's not because ah, there's a there's debaucherous. a blow up doll joke in the director's dracula in some which he made i think just after that one so i wondered if that was like a carryover from the original film or maybe what well, i don't know why wilder would have seen dracula in some though it feels like this was more faithful to Weber and his play. And Weber actually even adapted this. So it was it was Molinaro directing it, but it was Weber very much, it feels like, in the driver's seat with a lot of this. We did the birdcage as well, which is just amazing. Oh, yeah. And Dinner for Idiots. I mean, this guy has done a lot of stuff. Weber, that is. So I will watch it at some point. I keep telling him, my friend will be very annoyed now because I'm like, I'm absolutely going to watch it now because we're doing buddy-buddy 
I might will get us to watch it, but then I just ran out of film, out of time, and now I feel so bad. I also, he was the writer behind The Toy, which was, of course, remade with um, Richard Pryor. So I'm so curious to see the original of that. Oh, I didn't know there was an original to that. Yeah. That's interesting. Kind of wild. interesting. The original's got to be better. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think the racial politics aren't there because I think it's a white guy that is the toy. So you watch it now and you're just like, oh, my fucking God, how did this happen? God, even I remember seeing that as a kid. And even as a kid, I was like, what the what is this? Because I I love Richard Pryor, you know, and I I still do. Like Richard Pryor is great. But yeah, don't that's not the one I would recommend. The character that Jacques Brel plays, the Jack Lemon character, is Francois Pignon, and Pignon would show up uh, in other Feber um, films uh, and plays, including Dinner for Idiots. There's an, another uh, character named uh, Pignon in that as well. So I haven't seen Dinner for Idiots, either the original or the remake of that. I Again, I kind of think the original is probably going to be funnier, but... I know the remake actually has a pretty darn good cast. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen either one. I need to. I definitely. I'm with Cat. I my knowledge of French comedies very very tiny. But that's something I don't know. I love that's French seventies film, but I, there's so much of like the erotic stuff and the and the and the what I call existential romance stuff from that period that I'm nowhere near done going through that at this point, but. Whenever I have seen the seventies French comedies, I've really enjoyed them because they're just they're just so cynical, aren't they? They've just got that cynicism. Wilder could be very cynical, but it's almost as if he's given up with his adaptation. And it's funny because Wilder, even in a book that I was reading, they were interviewing Wilder, and he was like, "Yeah, I probably should have gone with somebody more like a Clint Eastwood than a Walter Matthau, like a tough guy type character." Oh, that might have been interesting, though. Well, them doing that with Lino Ventura as the killer, I was like, "Oh, yeah, that really works," because Ventura can do whatever and do it fabulously every single time, and he plays a really good killer in this, of course. That that might mind Clint was in his um, every which way phase at this point, wouldn't he? <laughs> Would he work with Wilder? I don't know. Oh my god, could you imagine those two working together? Mine, he was good. He was he was good. He 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 was in that um, Italian comedy from the sixties, The Witches, where he plays in the segment. I think he's in the Visconti. Is he in the Visconti or the De Sica section uh, before he was famous? And he plays a dull husband. And MGM apparently suppressed it for years and then it finally came out because they didn't want people to see Clint Eastwood in this site. But he's so good in that as this like really boring husband because it's Clint Eastwood. So now Billy Wilder saying that's like, why isn't this Clint Eastwood? <laughs> no, no offense to Walter Matthau, but I think as soon as you get him with Jack Lemon to go way back to what you said at the beginning, they just become Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. Like with their, regardless of the film, they always play that same energy out, and it rarely seems to like divert from that from those two characters. I mean, I don't think we've mentioned their names, have we? They are just Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau because they are literally the kind of stereotypes of you know what they became in the sixties. And both of them had a lot more range than that. 
you know, Mata and the Neil Simon stuff. Trap Lemon was just fucking amazing. Well, there's that weird thing, too, with the Paul Apprentice character, her name being Cecilia. And so then Lemon is listening to a recording of an old song called Cecilia. And then once the tape stops is when he hangs himself. And that's whole cloth for this version of it, because that's not in any other version that I saw. I have to say the Turkish version, very confusing because, well, one, no subtitles and somehow the two characters are also, they both end up getting married to women at the end of it. So it's like, I don't know if he's going after his old wife or what's going on because the end of the movie is probably the funniest part of the movie when they're trying is to figure peak out. Is Turkish as well? Is this like 80s Turkish? Yeah, this is 83 Turkish. So this is only two years after Buddy Buddy. Yeah, I don't think Sense was something they did. But I, I saw the, the a remake of The Strange Voice of Mrs. Ward, which was a what a thing to remake. And that is amazing. You can even see like the camera guy holding a twig. That's so it's supposed to look like a forest. <laughs> That's supposed to look like a forest. You see someone's fucking hand. You're like, is that the killer? No, it's the cameraman. I really should have done my due diligence and watched the 2008 version because that was Weber directing his own play to his own screenplay. So all of these years later, him doing it himself. Because you were right. There's he and and the director of A Pain in the Ass, um, Molinaro. They had worked several times together, so I'm very curious why he was like, oh, I'll, I'll just do a pain in the ass again, and this time I'm directing it. Hmm. Maybe he was annoyed with all the other versions. It could be. But uh, there is a trailer for that that's available on YouTube with subtitles for the trailer, and it looks pretty fucking funny. But I'd be very curious how they update it in 2008 versus 1973. Going back to, is it not... Is it bamboo? What is? Bumbo? There's so many versions. Bumbo. We haven't seen any of them, and it's just a sea of them. <laughs> Bumbo. That one. Holy. There's like that one. Does, there's explosions in that one. That looks nuts. You have belly dancing. There's a lot of yelling. There's a character. What are they called? Mister Jackass. Mister Jackass. I think it's the lemon character. And Mister. Is it Mister Kickass? <laughs> It looks so good. I mean, I don't even know if it looks classically good, but it looks just like, whoa. I I love the we energy. We don't do classically good, though, do we? It's, you know, my, my scale on things being good can include, you know, a cock pendant, um, you know, someone in the right pair of shorts, uh, an interesting wig, you know, <laughs> basically my, my, my baseline for judging cinema. Everyone else is like, what about the mise-en-scene? It's like, you know, I didn't I didn't notice any of that. I was too busy looking at the tracksuit and wondering if we had fucking Speedos on. It's, you know how, like, Cradle of Phil have those those liner notes on, I'm trying to watch a rich album, where they say, this libertine plays the guitar? That We're the real libertines. We're the, we're, we are, like, the Danny Phil of, <laughs> of film criticism. Not criticism, film love. Film talking. I get. I always bristle and somebody's like film crit. I'm like, no, I'm not a critic. <laughs> I just feel like it's so joyless. It's a joyless word. And film is art is joy. Even even when it's depressing and heavy, it's still joyous. It's a joyous thing to to be a part of. And nothing is more joyous than Klaus Kinski wearing a cock pendant. 
All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. We're about to enter a potential battle zone. If you like Monty Python, you'll love this hilarious British comedy. Welcome to Jacksonville, Florida. In a world of outlandish terrorists. Are any questions? Where do babies come from? Lunatic leaders. We would sell our grandmothers for such a matter. And government's gone haywire. What could possibly go wrong? Ah! Whoops. Apocalypse. So, Heather, what is happening with you, ma'am? For starters, I recently got to write kind of what I call a wee primer about uh, the film world of Jean Roland for Arrow Films blog. And I highly, I had so much fun uh, writing it. And I also highly recommend, especially if uh, anybody has access to the Arrow streaming app, there is a fabulous little taster documentary that was that was made by our lovely guest Kat Ellinger. And I highly recommend that. And what is the title of that documentary, Kat? Is um, do you know, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an asshole. I wasn't trying to. And the, the French the erotic. erotic. Yes, I highly recommend it. Though Jean Roland is uh, one of my favorite auteurs, and Cat's little—it's like it's Cat made a primer with that documentary. And Heather, I know you're supposed to be talking about your own work, though. I know, but it's so good. So, okay, just, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> I talk. I'm, it's a. I talk about what I want. You're too no, um, nice. <laughs> too lovely. No, it's too it's generous. beautiful, and I love Thank Jean Roland so much. And so I, you know, I recommend checking it out and reading my article. And also, uh, I believe this went out today. Have his amazing article, by the way. Have his amazing article. Thank you, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was recently on the Shoot the Piano Player podcast talking about Salon Kitty. Uh, and that just went live, I think, today. So uh, also uh, Culture Cast podcast. Uh, I was on both the episodes for Dragnet with Father Malone. And then, of course, with the lovely our captain our chief captain and cook mike white talking about rangila which is a fabulous bollywood movie that was my first bollywood film to leave that all up if you go to my website mondoheather.com i recently wrote about getting to see the band blue oyster cult live and i love blue oyster cult and uh it was a fun show and i i recommend checking that out and you can also find some of my other work over at diabolicmagazine.com and you can find me on Twitter and uh, Instagram under at Mondo Heather and Patreon as well. And Kat, how about yourself? Um, I can't announce my big thing yet, I don't think, so I don't know when the announcements is coming. But I did do another big thing, so I did a commentary with the lovely Heather on Times Square for Kino, even though they neglected to put her in the credits. But she is there. <laughs> I promise. I'm like the Vinnie Vincent. <laughs> 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 it is is both of us and that was an absolute pleasure that was an absolute pleasure to do because we've been waiting on that announcement for quite some time i think yeah so that's just out and i don't think i can announce anything else just yet so check me out on patreon at cat ellinger's confessions of a cine slip well thank you so much ladies for being on the show Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. 